Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the National Day of Racial Healing hopes to open and encourage discussion about racism and reconciliation. Then a Mississippi lawmaker introduces legislation to to decriminalize fentanyl test strips, plus what teachers want to see this legislative session. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today is the National Day of Racial Healing. The day was first organized by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation in 2017 and takes place the Tuesday after Martin Luther King Jr. Day every year. Rhea Williams Bishop is the Foundation's Director of Programming in Mississippi and New Orleans. She tells us it's a day for unity and finding solutions to racial inequities. We are all so inspired by the work and the words of Dr. King, and we wanted to do something that would help us live up to his dream and and his legacy. So the National Day um, of Racial Healing provides an opportunity for individuals, for communities and organizations to actually come together to acknowledge the values that we share as, you know, collectively as people, build trust in each other, um, develop authentic relationships, and inspire collective action on how we heal from the effects of of racism. And, um, you know, healing events are taking place in communities all across our country with the sole goal of creating a more just and equitable future for all children. And this is our seventh annual National Day of Racial Healing. What kinds of things do you do to try to promote racial healing? And what does racial healing look like? Great, great question, Desiree. So what racial healing uh, looks like for us is bringing folks together to have conversations and to tell their stories share their narrative because we believe that when people connect and come together and build relationships based on uh, understanding and mutual respect, then they are better able to bridge divides and work together to to change uh, systems, structures, and institutions that have historically created barriers that really keep and inhibit equitable opportunities for all people. The racial healing experience, it takes a lot of different paths. And like other successful experiences, um, it's ongoing. It's not just a one-time deal. So on an individual level, people can connect. They address and shift their mindsets based on that and then shape or reshape how we relate to each other on a day-to-day basis of dealing with, with racial equity. The racial healing then helps communities build relationships, and helps us understand how racism impacts uh, your community, our community, and all the people in it. And another, uh, an example I like to use, and I picked this up at a meeting on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's, think about planning a dance. So some people define, you know, equality and equity as representing being on the party planning committee. Diversity is then being invited to the party 
Inclusion is being asked to dance, and then belonging is dancing like no one's watching. So you're able to be free to be who you can, who you need to be, to do your work uh, in in the community. How do you bring people together? to encourage them to talk because this is not an issue that people want to openly discuss oftentimes. And as you mentioned, it's not a one-off. This is something Mm -hmm. that has to continue and build and build. How do you get buy-in at all? So we have several uh, programs and several ways that we work with grantees, grantee partners and communities. Uh, in order to, to uh, promote racial equity and racial healing, we have the Community Leaders Network, where we have fellows that uh, participate in an 18-month program and have very detailed conversations about not only the working community, but how we arrive at racial healing. Um, we have what we call uh, you know, uh, welcome circles, um, where we have... Um, equity practitioners all across the country who at the request of individual you know, organizations or communities, they come in and actually, they've been trained in prompting questions and ways that you get people to share their narratives so that they come to some common ground to be prepared to build bridges to resolve so many issues that face our country in terms of polarization and divisiveness. Uh, these conversations then bring people to a common place of understanding and meeting people where they are, and then they can move into into healing. And we're we're really excited about the the two town halls because um, this is the first time that we've been in partnership with NBC Universal News Group. So one the Telemundo town hall begins at six. Uh, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, and then the English uh, Town Hall on MSNBC is at 9 Central Standard Time, and we'll, we'll feature leading advocates, artists, community members engaging in critical discussions about equity and healing, and we'll have a timely call to action for positive change. So for the uh, MSNBC Town Hall, it's going to be hosted by Chris Hayes, uh, Joanne Reed, and Tremaine Lee. The Telemundo Town Hall will be hosted by Lori Montenegro and Johanna Suarez. Um, and you know, organizations will, will be acknowledging the values that we share, building trust with each other, and developing authentic relationships and inspiring collective action. Um, all this information tools that folks can use can be um, found on our website. Dayofracialhealing.org, um, and what we what we hope that this national focus on MSNBC and Telemundo, our hope is for people who did not have access or did not have these conversations or host uh, uh, any event around the National Day of Racial Healing, will be encouraged to do so next year. So the best time to start is is right now in planning either a watch party or what have you so that locally and individually families, communities, and organizations can have these these, uh, hard conversations that lead to healing. With the political and racial divide in the country right now, who are you finding that is willing to participate in this? And I'm talking about racial reconciliation conversations? 
Sisteree, we are we're focused on the positive. We open the door and invite everyone to participate in National Day of Racial Healing. Uh, you know, the, the, the saying is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But we hope that the positive focus of this event will bring people from all walks of life, from, from all political uh, backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. Um, one of the things that, that I often use to, to make the point when we talk about racial equity and racial healing, James Baldwin has a, a, a famous quote that I use all the time. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so the one thing that this does is that it allows us the opportunity to even acknowledge the effects um, of, of racism. Um, heal, racial healing is, is isn't just important. I think it's essential and at the very heart of racial equity. Racism impacts all of us. You just mentioned the, the polarization and the divisiveness that we, you know, ex, we experience here in this country. But it especially impacts children and prevents us and our country from living up to our ideals of opportunity and equality. Um, you know, when we we very often fail to recognize each other's shared humanity or the diversity of our collective history and experiences, but we have to do everything in our power to strengthen the ties that bind us to each other rather than focusing on what divides us. And racial healing is an essential part of that process. All right. Rhea Williams Bishop, Director of Mississippi and New Orleans Programs for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Thank you so much in speaking with us about the seventh annual National Day of Racial Healing and why it's so important for all of us to be engaged in this on some level. Thank you so much, Desiree. Coming up. A Mississippi lawmaker introduces a bill to decriminalize fentanyl test strips. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Changes could be coming at the state level to combat a deadly opioid epidemic. Lawmakers are debating if the state should make test strips legal for the controlled substance fentanyl. Currently, the strips are classified as paraphernalia, making possession of them illegal. Republican Lee Yancey of Brandon chairs the House Drug Policy Committee and introduced a bill to reclassify the strips. He shares more with our Kobe Vance. We have an opioid crisis across our country, and we have a number of students, young people, who have been overdosing on pills that are laced with fentanyl, which is very deadly. And so currently, fentanyl testing strips, and now there's a new product that's a fentanyl testing wipe, are currently considered paraphernalia. Uh, when uh, drug enforcement officials are making arrests. And 
we think it would be a good idea to give those that, that take these pills a way to test to see if there's fentanyl in them. We don't want to encourage drug use, and we certainly hope that people won't take pills that weren't prescribed by their doctor. But at the same time, we want to be realistic and try to make sure that mistakes that young people make are not fatal mistakes. And to give them a chance to get through this season in life uh, by being sure that the pills they take don't have a deadly drug in them that's going to kill them. As it currently stands, the law would classify these strips as illegal. Is that correct? That's right. They're, they're illegal. They're considered paraphernalia. It's an enhanced penalty that, that they would... Uh, the, the law enforcement officials would tag on with all the other penalties, possession of illegal drugs or possession with intent to distribute, paraphernalia, you know, those kinds of things. So you know, anything that's used in the creation or distribution of illegal substances would be considered paraphernalia. Where do you think these kind of things could be distributed to be able to help Mississippians that you know, might be going through an addiction problem but want to make sure that they might be safe? Certainly, we want to get them out to our psychiatrists, uh, those who are dealing with those in, with addiction problems. I can also see uh, them being available through regular doctor's offices or drug education uh, type centers, uh, even make them available um, you know, for sale in pharmacies. Uh, you know, it's just a product that, that needs to be in the hands of, of every single person who's considering taking a pill. What do you think this could mean for people, for the, for the state in general, and being able to use these strips to potentially prevent deaths? I think the, the main thing is that you have young people who are going through a season in their life where they may be experimenting with drugs, someone handing them a pill at a party, um, you know, making what, what, what we adults on the other side of, of youth would say are, are juvenile mistakes, but it, it, we, we try to ensure that these mistakes that they make are not fatal mistakes, and they have a second chance to be a productive citizen. And many of them, uh, once they get through this season of their life, uh, leave all that behind. And so uh, we'd like to reduce the number of deaths. We'd like to prevent any unnecessary deaths and to show compassion uh, to those parents out there who are suffering now as a result of losing their children. Do you think this might set back any efforts for law enforcement to be able to follow these where fentanyl might be distributed? Um, law enforcement is supportive of this bill. The Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Department of Public Safety, uh, the Sheriff of Rankin County have all encouraged me to decriminalize the fentanyl testing strips. They see the problem of, of the overdose deaths and they're all very supportive along with the State Medical Association. Is there anything else you'd like to tell Mississippians about this and you know, what are your thoughts on the future of this bill? The message that we want to get out to everyone across the state is that one pill can kill. One pill can kill, and it matters uh, what you put in your body. And you don't know what you're putting in your body. And so having a way to test it for this deadly substance is, is a way to, to have a second chance. Um, so I think it's going to pass. I hope that it does. Um, you know, there are those who think that this maybe encourages drug use or condones drug use and I think those who take pills are going to take pills anyway and so why not show a little compassion and try to save some lives help some people get through a season in their life and go on to become productive citizens. That was House Drug Policy Chair Lee Yancey with our Kobe Vance. Coming up what teachers want to see this legislative session. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
MPB Think Radio airs local programs every weekday morning at 9. It's your chance to learn about Southern cooking, home improvement projects, and more. MPB Think Radio, Mississippi is our mission. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's largest teacher advocacy group is calling on state lawmakers to offer livable wages to school staff members. A law was signed last year that increased the average certified teacher salary in Mississippi beyond the national average. But Erica Jones, president of the state's Association of Educators, says wage increases need to be extended to all school staff. She tells our Kobe Vance it's one in a number of improvements her organization is lobbying for. We know the best thing for our members and the students here in Mississippi is to continue to advocate around different public education issues. This week we'll ask not only our retired educators, but some of our student teachers to join us here at the Capitol as we lobby and continue to advocate around public education. What's some of the big topics this year y'all are pushing for? Uh, some of the topics we're pushing for are livable wages for our classified support staff. Those are our teacher assistants, our bus drivers, our secretaries, and our cafeteria workers. We're also advocating around community schools, as well as something that we've advocated for years on fully funding of MAEP. Can you talk about the teacher pay raise we saw last year? Uh, we've seen that go into effect now. Have, how has that been effective? And, you know, we have also seen uh, premiums go up as well for teachers, and that has seen some negative effects. Do you think this year might be a time to begin to address those conflicts whenever the pay raise goes up, but we see premiums go up to meet that? So we'll have, we've had an opportunity to speak with our educators, and we were ecstatic about the pay raise. But it seems as if each time we get a pay raise, those insurance premiums do go up. So we are looking forward to having a conversation with our legislators around that, what we can do to prevent that from happening each time we get a teacher pay raise. Our teachers have reached out to us and thanked us. In fact, we had many teachers who were looking to retire and move to other states to teach, but because of our teacher pay raise, they decided to stay another year or two here in our state. What does it mean to be able to invest in those uh, younger teachers, the teacher's assistants, I should say, or the bus drivers, people that might, might have been left out of that raise last year? So one thing we know is that we lose educators to other states. So when we think about the teacher pay raise that was given last year, we know that addressed our certified educators here in the state, our classroom teachers. This year we're going to continue to advocate for a living wage for our teacher assistants who was left out of that big teacher pay raise, but we have been ensured that there's going to be some lobbying around doing what's right for our classified educators. 
Can you talk more about the community schools? What would that look like? So when we think about our community schools, we're thinking about those schools that are based inside of our communities that provide wraparound services, not only for our students here in Mississippi, but for our educators in our communities as well. So when we think about offering dental services for our students, when we think about offering counseling services, those are some of the things you would find housed inside of a community school. It's where everyone will have an opportunity to come in. There wouldn't be any outsiders there participated in the community school because it's embedded right there in a particular community. How do you think that could change a community if it was available? When we think about our rural areas that often have do not have access to health and counseling services, this could be a very big impact on that. They could receive services right at their schools without having to travel hundreds of miles. Have we seen that modeled anywhere in Mississippi yet or in other states? Uh, We've seen it modeled in our Mississippi Delta. We are looking to explore it in other states so that we can also bring that information back here to our citizens in Mississippi. I also want to talk about MAEP, Adequate Education Fund. We haven't seen that fully funded. What do you think could be done to get lawmakers to either invest more into that or make it fully funded for the first time? It is our hope that our lawmakers see what a great job our educators have done over these past couple of years. When we think about our educators teaching throughout a pandemic, when we think about all of the hard work we've noticed, not only statewide but nationwide, our math scores have increased, our reading scores have increased. Our educators were able to do that with additional funding, the sky is the limit to what our educators will be able to do. That's why we're going to continue to advocate around MAEP. What would it look like if MAEP was fully funded? How could that change the lives of teachers? It would change the lives of not only our teachers in the classroom, but our students as well, because they will have the resources that they need. The uh, materials such as workbooks, technology, classroom supplies, all of that would be provided. Um, something that's a bit off topic, and if you I understand if you don't want to talk to it at the moment, but a governor has been proposing legislation that would, uh, in two parts, one would give it to where uh, parents would have more say in what their schools are allowed to do, uh, and then the other part would be schools would be uh, moving away from respecting children that have different pronouns or different names they would like to go by in classrooms uh, that might be different from what they were born with. Um, What do you think that could mean for classrooms having either parents have more say in what's going on in classrooms or having restrictions for what students can express themselves in classrooms. We know that our educators are our best choice when it comes to advocating for our students. Our educators are highly trained professionals, and we must keep that in mind. As we think about what that looks like in classroom, we want to work as a partner with our parents. Parents have always depended on the resources of our classroom teachers to help, and it shouldn't be any different. At MAE, we are looking to partner with parents to do what's right. We don't want it to be one-sided where one group has more rights than the others. This is a collaboration, a partnership of doing what's best for our students in Mississippi. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Erica Jones is president of the Mississippi Association of Educators. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.